I have to admit, I'm not what you'd call a big fan of the Borderlands series. Like, I am, I do enjoy them, or at least I enjoyed 2 and pre-sequel and Tales of, of course. But I'm not what you'd call, like, oh man, I can't wait for a new Borderlands game kind of a thing. Although at the same time, I do enjoy the Borderlands games, especially co-op. And I would very much enjoy getting, you know, getting a Borderlands 3 and actually going somewhere with this series. Especially since pre-sequel and 2 and Tales of all kind of were like, hey, you know... Stinger, where there's going to be something in the future. Woo! Um, and then that hasn't gone anywhere. But I do want to say why that is. See, the tone of the world is probably the biggest thing that's an enjoyment to me. The generally crazy, pseudo-Mad Max, you know, borderland kind of a thing they've got going on here. <clears throat> and I do like that. And I do like a lot of the characterization of my five points of story probably the one thing that Borderlands does best is characterization. Not a lot of character growth. There's really only one true character arc I can think of off the top of my head here. And I'll talk about that later, of course. But a lot of characterization. You know, I, I jotted down some just random names uh, as we're going through. Like, we learn about Wilhelm and Nisha, Fracktrap, of course. We get more uh, understanding of how and why he works. Uh, Skipper, great example, Gladstone and Moxie, all of these characters, in this game in particular, receive a lot of under-the-hood... I'm saying that wrong. Not under-the-hood, that's a different concept. More fleshing out under the surface, so they're not just an archetype or a stereotype, whatever. And I like that. I like how much personality the characters tend to have in these games. Even the random bosses, you know, like Deadlift, as you're going through, it's like, it, you, you learn them and they, they mock you and taunt you as you're leading up to them, and it adds to the flavor of the work when you actually get a feeling for who it is you're killing and why and who it is you're working for and why and all that fun stuff. It's, it's the same thing that I always say story is such an integral part of a video game. It adds that all-important investment. Because now it's not just, you know, Skipper or the Bosun is actually another example. The Skipper was more memorable than the Bosun for me. But, you know, why am I trying to help this woman who is being, ca well, okay, she's being captured by this. Okay, she doesn't really like this. Oh, so he used to be a programmer. Oh, okay, so he reprogrammed. Oh, so she's the AI. You know, as this develops, we get more and more. So it, it goes from being what would normally, like, if you just break it down to the bare bones, that quest, you know, going and rescuing the, the skipper AI, is just go kill these guys, open these doors, and then kill these guys. Really basic X of Y kind of a quest. But adding in all that dialogue and all those little snippets of banter between the bosun and the skipper and you is what really helps flesh out the, the, the communication back and forth. Oh, also Pickle, excuse me, Pickle was involved in that as well. If it wasn't for that, this game would be really, really boring. But that's what makes it entertaining. Now, normally I talk about gameplay in the first section, but I wanted to emphasize this because... I kind of just gave my opinion in one sentence, and I hope you caught it, because honestly, I find this kind of loot-and-shoot game kind of boring. Not bad, okay? I personally find it boring, because I'm not much of a loot person. I want to talk about that model a little bit. I talked about this during the, uh, during the actual stream when I was doing the live rumination of this game. There are two 
pretty much diametrically opposite types of mentality when it comes to gear in game design philosophy. There's the loot philosophy, and then there's the heirloom philosophy. Now, these are my own terms. I have no idea what they're actually called. The loot philosophy is exactly what it sounds like. You are supposed to loot lots of things regularly and replace gear regularly. It's supposed to be a commonplace thing. All right, new gun, all right, new, new, new uh, mod, new ammo, another new gun. Okay, now I've got new armor or whatever. You know, chung, 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 chung. Uh, other example. It's easiest to explain what a loot game is just by giving you examples. The first Destiny was a loot game. Um, the Division was a loot game. Uh, Torchlight and Torchlight 2 are loot games. The Diablo series kind of varies as to whether or not it's a loot game or not. Kind of, kind of depends. That, that's, that's more of a ill-definable. But at certain points in play, the Diablo series can also be seen as a loot game. So that's the loot mentality. Now, I just don't really get into that personally. There's nothing wrong with it. I want to stress that. It's just not quite my thing. Uh, I tend to prefer the heirloom philosophy, which is the exact opposite. The heirloom philosophy is when you get a gun, and then you level it up and you you modify it and you improve it so you know the gun let's call it the, the blaster 5000 because i'm really boring with names that you get at level one by the time you're level 25 you're still using the blaster 5000 you just modded it or increased your ammo increased your skills with it or literally leveled it up or put relics in it or put uh, you know, shards in it, or put you know, merged it with another third age weapon, or whatever, in order to keep it increasing in power. Uh, that's the kind of thing I tend to prefer personally because I like the idea of having my one, you know, thing that I get bonded to and I use that forever. Kind of an idea. But neither of these are right or wrong. It's just helping to describe the type of gameplay we've got going on with the Borderlands. Now, what's funny? <laughs> I made a comment. You know, ah, I wish there was a way to equip things easier than there is. And everyone in chat's like, oh, there is. You just hold down E. You know, I've played Borderlands and Borderlands 2 and was like an hour into Borderlands, a pre-sequel, before I learned that. I'm apparently a moron. Uh, apologies, guys. I'm not sure why you're listening to me, given how stupid I am. I couldn't even figure out the gravity jumping, uh, apparently. <clears throat> As good a time to talk about that as any, I, I want to say something. In terms of pure gameplay, design, balance, etc., I would say the pre-sequel is my favorite from a purely gameplay perspective. The quests were fun, and uh, the terrain for the quests, and the flow of the quest progress, and the, of course, the banter, as I mentioned earlier, was more polished, in my opinion, than the previous two games. And I found the... Uh, the overall power progression that you go through with regards to the loot, of course, but also your abilities and, and your badass points and whatever, to be better designed, like the curve was designed better, you know what I mean? That could just be my own vague impressions, and I only played several hours of this game before I, thanks to deadlines, had to start cheating. Uh, but I did want to at least get a feel for the game before I had to, to get on with it. I also... Uh, do praise most of the level design, but this is probably my one and only true complaint gameplay-wise, is I feel like they added this gravity moonwalk mechanic, which at first seems cool, but the more I played with it, the more it seemed like they didn't... like, they, they implemented it, and the engine wasn't quite designed for this kind of thing, so they did what my friend would call brute-forced it into the programming, into the code, 
And it kind of shows. Like, this doesn't feel like an engine that was designed for this kind of moonwalk, space-jubbing, platforming kind of a presentation. And there are several sections where it was like, okay, hang on, nope, nope, but this isn't quite working, and it doesn't quite know how to handle certain things, like on angled surfaces, for example. You know, it it reminded me of the old Half-Life games, uh, as an example, as in, like, Half-Life 1 and whatnot, with regards to not really being designed for that kind of a thing. I'm not saying that's a big negative, it's just that was probably the one true complaint I had playing through this game. Now, I actually don't have much else to say about the gameplay, to be completely honest. That's one of the reasons why I was okay with going ahead and cheating, because what else do you say about the gameplay of a Borderlands game? I do want to say one thing. As ever, the second wind mechanic is awesome. Uh, I do enjoy the second wind mechanic greatly, and I think it's an excellent addition to the series. It reminds me of another game I went through very recently, Warhammer 40k Space Marine, and of course Doom 4, which I referenced in that video as well. The idea of being able to play the game to progress forward, rather than you know not being able to do anything, or having to, to push in a continue, or burn a one-up, or whatever. You just, come on, I just need the one more kill! Okay, okay. And I do have to admit, thanks to the second win mechanic, I very quickly became encouraged to take to basically ignore the ads and focus on the boss, so that any time I started getting, you know, I went into a second win state, I'm like, oh god, quick, quick, ads, take out the ads, take out the ads, okay. Okay, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back onto the boss, back onto this, up, oh, up, no, back to the ads, you know. And I do think that was an interesting mechanic, and it does add to the nature of the game. So let's talk about the story. Oh gosh, where do I start with this? One of the things I like, I played as Athena, by the way, for anybody who's curious. Uh, I am told that I might enjoy playing as Claptrap, or excuse me, Fragtrap, but uh, Athena is the one I played through, and I once I found out uh, that I could shield while shooting, I, I admit my enjoyment of the class improved significantly. <laughs> uh, um, playing through... I wanted to start with Athena, because Athena strikes me as the one sane person in the Borderlands series. No, seriously. Again, I mentioned earlier that overall tone of the Wild West, basically, or the Wild Outback or whatever, is something that's prolific throughout all of the Borderlands games, even Tales of. But Athena comes across as fairly straightforward, very professional, and actually reacting to things closer to what a normal person would. Whereas someone from Pandora, for example, would just be like, ha! Yeah, big explosions or whatever. Uh, as most exemplified, as she's telling this story, and every now and again Brick or, or uh, Mordecai pops in and is like, dude, that's awesome! And she's just like... <laughs> you know? I like that. I like her presentation as the straight man. Um, which I suppose has different connotations in the modern era. But look it up. <laughs> it has nothing to do with sexual orientation. Um, the I also have to admit that what they did with Lilith kind of made me turn ahead. Uh, I never exactly liked Lilith back in 2, but I really actively dislike how Lilith was portrayed in this game. And I'm not sure if that was a deliberate thing, or if they just didn't know where they were going with that, or if they're, this was the beginning of another story arc. Again, this game kind of doesn't really 
go anywhere like it was going to be because of the whole problems with the fact that the series hasn't continued. So whatever. Um, I do want us to give one praise to the thing. Obviously, the framing device, a good framing device tends to be a good thing in my experience. And I do like the little snippets as Athena talks to Lilith and Brick and Mordecai. Um, but what I like even more, and I did a little of this off camera, is when you do the, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's basically the New Game Plus hard mode where Tiny Tina shows up. And, it's, and she's like, oh, tell the story again, but make it more difficult this time. Okay. And so you get different banter and different dialogue as a result of going through on that mode, which I thought was kind of cool. I didn't see all of it. I just, you know, played it for a bit. Um, I do want to talk about the setting really quickly, because the setting of Borderlands has always weirded me out. And <laughs> I mean no insult to Anthony Birch, or the people who really designed this, this this setting of Borderlands, but I feel like they don't know a lot about world building. I suppose that is an insult. Whatever. Point being, when you and, and I, I myself run into this problem all the time when I'm designing a setting. In fact, I literally as soon as I finish this video and do a stream, uh, I'm going to be doing some work on designing a system that I need to work uh, for a particular setting for the upcoming Primus system uh, campaign, and. There's so many things, like, I want to do this. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, I've got a system. I'll go and use a literal example. I've got a system, I've got a planet, and there's seven other planets in the system, one of which was artificially pushed into the system. Okay, sure, I'm with that. Gravitational flows adjusted, whatever. But then I want other habitable planets, habited, excuse me, I want other hab inhabited planets to be in that system. But this system has until recently been locked off, you know, basically cordoned from the rest of the galaxy, so why, like, how has that been affecting them? What level of advancement are they? Why were they allowed to be locked off with everyone else, you know, because they were basically unrelated to the actual planet Primus, which was locked off, you know. These are questions that need to be solved. If I didn't solve them, I'd have Borderlands. And that's kind of my point. There's a lot of things in the Borderlands setting, and in, in the world building of it, that feel like they were done because, well, I want such and such, and then no work was really put into explaining the why and the how of that. Again, I do enjoy this setting quite a bit, but the world builder in me looks at it and it's like, oh my god. Like one of the one of the things that really gets to me too is this is a setting with insanely advanced technology. Like some of the technology they have in Borderlands is more advanced than what they have in Star Trek. And yet, at the same time, it's Borderlands, which is in general, presented as way more down-to-earth, you know, closer to, like, Firefly levels, uh, to use a direct comparison, when it comes to tech level. There's also the fact, and I, I will never let this go, that this is apparently a setting in which these corporations and the overall galactic power, excuse me, I shouldn't even say that, the overall governance power of the corporation stretches across six galaxies. Six galaxies. <laughs> What? And of course, all of the games thus far have basically taken place on in these really tiny, constrained areas, and it's like, okay, I guess. And there's this hint that, you know, the the uh, the Iridians, of course, uh, are still active to some extent or another, despite their civilization being destroyed shortly after having created the vaults, and there's some kind of vault network thing, we see bits of that in this game and in Tales From, and, and then there's this whole, oh my god, there's this great war coming and we know all the Vault Hunters we can get, which uh, several people, and myself included, have theorized is going to lead to an MMO thing. I, I don't know, I'll talk about that in a minute. But the point being, 
there's a lot of holes there. And I look at them like, well, but why is... And if this is this, but then why... Let's talk about that MMO thing. I just want to discuss this briefly, because the more I think about it, the more I'm not sure that's the direction to go. And you know what I would like, instead of an MMO? Just more co-op. I mean, the Borderlands have, other than Tales of, have always been co-op, right? So the idea of, you know, a crew of Vault Hunters being something that in lore they want in order to go deal with this upcoming war or whatever's happening, that makes sense. But make it like eight instead of four. You know, give us, give us the ability to play a large party of people and go, yeah, and have fun with it. You know, like Diablo 2, again, to go back to that example. Let us play a large group of people and just go have fun with it. That sounds awesome to me. Don't be like Diablo 3 and limit us to a party of four. Damn it. I like Diablo 3, but... Anyways, so we got the weird setting thing. I mentioned several characters, which I just kind of ran through really quickly there. Um... I want to say something that's going to make me unpopular. I don't dislike the clap traps in this game. I admit I didn't quite get the clap trap hate when I was go when I started going through Borderlands 2. Anyone remembers I streamed almost all of my playthrough of that game, but after about a quarter of the way through, it got to the point where it's like, "Oh my god, shut up." <laughs> it was uh Pax has a saying for this, and I can't remember what it is, but it's it's the idea of constant snarking. You know, if you're if imagine someone who tells a joke, okay, that's funny, and then they tell they tell another joke, okay, and then they tell another joke and another joke and another joke, and it's just this nonstop barrage of snarking. That's what it feels like to me. They're doing with the with the claptraps in two and and in one to an extent as well. You know, just this nonstop stream of ha ha. And after a while, it stops being funny, at least to me. It, it's an idea of the joke getting old. It's the same reason why when I was playing through FF10, uh, we did not actually have the Tita's Laughing mod on the entire time, because after a while, the joke stops being funny, my opinion. By contrast, they did it a little bit differently in this one. Obviously, there was still the snarking, but most of the joking was more contained, and there were nice big pauses in between the joke barrages. So, for example, when we first meet... Uh, the no, I didn't play as Claptrap, so maybe that's different if he plays them. But when you first meet the officer Claptrap, who's like, I love rules, they make me feel powerful. I mean, anyone watch the stream knows I actually burst out laughing uh, during that sequence. I was like, okay, that's that's good, you got me. And he gives us the citations for swearing. Okay, yep, I'm with it. <laughs> nice foreshadowing, by the way, because uh, in Borderlands 2, Handsome Jack will actually kill people for that offense, but I digress. So, I like it. And then there's this nice big pause, and then you get the thing where he's like, no, I've got to, you know, disable this wall, and then... And then there's a nice big pause, and then there's the uh, claptraps talking to the Hyperion computer and trying to get through the barrier up on the station. And then, you know, that's kind of it. So I actually liked their, their presentation in this particular game. Now, I didn't play the DLC, uh, the one where you actually go through, and which ends up you know, spoiler alert, who hasn't played the DLC, which ends up having, leading to the shutting down of all of the claptraps, except for the frag trap, who was then uh, shot and then disarmed and then tossed into the brink. But it's okay, he's rescued, so he can lead to the events of Borderlands 2. We're okay on that. Um, so I don't know if it's worse there. I have no idea. I do want to talk about Skipper. Um, <laughs> just... I mean, there's something amusing about a military-grade AI that actively dislikes killing. Because when they first put Skipper in the bot and was like, all right, start killing things, my first reaction was, oh boy, here we go. 
gonna have a crazy AI that's gonna go insane. Oh, no, she actually really dislikes killing. Now she's asking not to be put into the thing. Now, she was already hesitant to be put in, remember. This is already something she was like, eh, a constructor bot? I don't know. Oh, you want me to have arms? Oh, this is really unpleasant. You know, she was pretty against the idea from the beginning. But then, <laughs> you know what? I'll save that for a moment. Um, <laughs> but I do like how much characterization she has. And it really makes it even more chilling when she basically becomes the constructor AI that we encounter in Borderlands 2. The moment her voice changes to the constructor bot AI, I was just like, oh, okay, that's fun. Gladstone, I mentioned him. Uh, Gladstone was actually a pretty cool character. I liked him. Uh, a Gladstone, in many ways, reminds me of Jack. The idea of someone who is pretty normal when it comes down to it, but doesn't want to be. Wants to accomplish all these great, amazing things. Wants to reach out and really do all this stuff. You know, that kind of thing. I like that idea. And it's clear that Gladstone was the kind of person who's like, I, I'm going to fund this myself. I'm going to make this happen myself. I, I, this is such a rush to finally see my science matri You know, he's basically a mad scientist. He's just someone who's never really had the opportunity to be a mad scientist. That's So I, my earlier statement about him being normal is a little bit different. It's more like he is a mad scientist who is forced to be normal, but then through the course of the game we allow him to be a mad scientist. Moxie, of course. Um, I know there's a little bit in, uh, I think it's Borderlands 2, or it could be the DLC of Borderlands 1, I'm not sure which, but I know there's a little bit where Moxie you know, lets her accent slip, because she's actually a hick, and she's super embarrassed about that, for whatever reason. But it's gr it was great to see her in the overalls, working on a thing, singing a nonsense song, and it's like, oh my god. <laughs> wow. Moxie was also very interesting to me because, and I called this out several times on stream, I kept asking the question, why is she helping us so much? Because it kept happening. Obviously, the initial thing, she was, you know, was like, alright, go go ask Moxie. It's, it's, I hate to do this, but we're going to have to do it. She's like, okay, I'll help you with this one thing, but tell Jack we're square after this. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But then she kept helping us, and kept helping us, and I'm like, and given her inevitable betrayal, which I really should have seen coming, honestly, it makes a lot of sense in hindsight. And I, I, I suppose I've, I've circled it enough now, so I'm going to go ahead and just, I'm just going to talk about Jack. Because Jack is difficult for me to speak about in words. He's the kind of character that most people when they who've played the games are like, yeah, yeah, no, it's Jack, I get it. But... So, let me just go ahead and say that I'm going to try very hard to distinguish Jack from Handsome Jack, because I do consider the two to be effectively separate characters. Not literally. Not literally separate entities, but separate points in the character's arc, I think. As I mentioned before, I said there was one character arc. Well, this is the character arc, Jack's. Jack's transformation from him into Handsome Jack. They even do a different color, uh, character splash when he becomes Handsome Jack and has the, uh, the mask on. And... <laughs> Is it strangling or choking? No, it's strangling. He's str he's strangling uh, his boss to death. <clears throat> Slowly, because he said three words. <sighs> Handsome Jack is a character I've heard some people erroneously refer to as a Joker type. And while there's certainly elements of that there, Handsome Jack hits a very specific 
combination of different archetypes that blend really, really well. He's very charismatic, he's incredibly self-deluded and a huge hypocrite, but still honestly, fervently, zealously believes in himself and his cause with a lot of egomania, uh, egomania, excuse me, going through him as he's doing that. And he also very much... He's basically a monster. He's, he's, I mean, he's a complete monster, but he's not. He's insane. He's an insane, crazy psychopath, but he's not. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful nuance and balance. And, of course, all of that's more in Borderlands 2, which I'm not discussing right now. I'm talking more about Jack, because Handsome Jack doesn't really show up until the betrayal scene, in my opinion. Uh, now, before I played this game, I'd heard many rumors, or I shouldn't say rumors, speculators, theorcrafters, who speculated that something happened when Jack had the, uh, the vision of the vault put into him, and that's what led him to go completely insane. I've heard some people agree and disagree on this, and you, of course, are more than free to, to come up with your own opinion and tell me what it is in the comments, because I'm curious. I personally think that's more like another step off the edge rather than the beginning of his descent. Because having played through the game and listening to his dialogue and wonderful writing for his dialogue and amazing voice acting, it becomes more clear that this is actually a surprisingly well-done A to Z story. Now, I don't get to talk about the A to Z thing that much, so I'm going to explain it really quick. A to Z is, when you go from A to B, it's not a big shift, right? B seems completely reasonable from the perspective of A. Now, if you were to go from A to Z, well, that's insane. No, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, a badly designed descent into villainy tends to be an A to, you know, when you jump A straight to Z. But an A to Z, when you go through the whole alphabet, or at least, you know, more steps than one, is when you're like, okay, I'm going to go from A to D. Okay, D seems reasonable, you know, given the circumstances. Okay, now that I'm at D, F and G look more reasonable, because it's only one little step. It's, it's basically the slow-boiling, you know, crab-in-a-pot kind of a theory. You, it's easier to take little steps towards villainy than it is to just kind of dive into it. And that's what goes through Jack. I actually was taking notes throughout the course of this. So, let's talk about where he starts off. Because Jack, really, Takoida, I think, mentioned he, he's a big Jules Verne fan, and I love that parallel, so I wanted to give it a shout-out here. Uh, the idea is he's, again, someone who isn't normal inside, but is basically forced to be normal. Now, it's worth noting, by the beginning of pre-sequel, he already had Angel in the uh, in the satellite, and he already had the eye, the super weapon from the Destroyer. And he'd already arranged the events of the first game. So it's not like he was completely normal. But at the same time, he was still more... The way he reacts to his boss, whose name I don't even remember, CEO evil guy, uh, is an excellent example of how relatively small he feels and how generally normalized he is. You know, they keep saying he's a low-level programmer. And there's some questionable nature about that and how sardonic that statement is. But there's no denying that he's a relatively low man on the totem pole and is forced into a relatively ordinary life until a bunch of doll troops invade the station, at which point he jumps at the call. You know, the call to adventure, the call to action. He's like, yes, finally! Again, forced into normalcy, but now allowed to do something other than being normal. Pardon me, I just need to check something real quick. There we go, we're good. So, yes, let's go! Um, he leaps at the call, 
And he's very charismatic, and he's very dynamic, and a little inconsistent in his portrayal. Uh, in a good way, though. I mean, it's it. He, there's hints of his instability there. But Jack stays behind so that she can get to the moon. Or I, Obviously, I say Athena because I was playing as her, but Jack stays behind so the player character can get to the moon. Now, does that sound like Handsome Jack? He's also quite rational and friendly. Now, neither of these things are things that Handsome Jack has at all. For all of Handsome Jack's positive character traits, I, mean, I hesitate to even use that terminology. You know, his charisma, his, uh, his, his, uh... God, I don't even know what else to use. Let's just say it's his charisma, because he's a very charismatic uh, character in two. For, and for his, his self-delusion and how he perceives things in his, in his deluded state and all that, um, he was never really friendly, and he was never rational. In fact, his irrationality and his basically being insane, not just crazy, but legitimately insane, was, was a major part of his character in Borderlands 2. But here, he is quite rational, thinks very logically and very smoothly, and... Even when he gets to the point of being like, ah, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a lot more down-to-earth, a lot more subdued. And, of course, he's very friendly, affable. And he has a surprising amount of, I guess, decency is the word I would use here. Not tremendous amount of decency. He's not a good person. And I want to point that out. This is, I feel like this keeps coming up this year as I go through Ruminations, where there's a villain who is fleshed out and grayed out, but not. But then people are like, oh, well, he's obviously a good guy. No, no, just because you add flavor and depth and layers to a villain does not make them good. They're still a villain, you know? Just because you sympathize with a villain, just because you understand them or you care about them, does not make them not a villain. Jack was still a villain, remember? Uh, and everything that Jack had been doing was still villainous. He was just way better of a person in terms of, not just, not in terms of morally, but in terms of being a person, being a functional entity. Again, the rationality, the friendliness, and very, uh, very protective. He uh, keeps his deals, and he very much wants to protect his team, whatever his team is. And he does actually do that throughout the course of the game. He does pay Athena. He does ensure that, uh, what's her name, Nisha does get the town, ends up dating her. Weird. Uh, Wilhelm, he brings him into the fold, and Wilhelm slowly becomes more and more cybernetic, apparently, as you level him up. I have to say apparently, because that was told to me. Uh, and, of course, he will end up being the loader bot boss of Doom when we finally get to Borderlands 2. But... What happens is, as we go through the game, you know, he's talking to us, he's like, okay, we gotta do this, we gotta save the moon, blah, 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 blah. Then the situation with Merif happens. That was the first time I really noted it. That was the first real thing, because he's like, ah, oh, I'm gonna get you, Merif. No, I'm just kidding, you're fine. And he, he gets Merif to talk, and then he turns to leave. As if sparing him was a completely normal, ordinary thing to do. Then Merif tries to shoot him with his gun that he's not a good shot with, with one bullet, while Jack has a shield. So that doesn't go very well for Merif. And Jack gets upset about that because he was literally just shot in the back. Uh, and metaphorically, I suppose I should also add. So then he shoots Merif like four times, I want to say. And that's probably the official moment he started descending. That was the A to B moment. the Because... 
up until then, it was reasonable, decent, and then he's like, oh, God! And he actually refers to that incident several times in dialogue in the rest of the game. You know, if you give people an inch or if you let people do whatever, they will betray you. And then after he kills him, he's like, that actually felt kind of good. I think it was Deutsch who mentioned this on the stream, but it's clear to me that uh, Jack was a unhinged person from the beginning, uh, probably thanks to his grandmother and the way he was raised, in all honesty. But something in him was holding back the worst parts of himself. He hadn't actually become broken yet. He's the kind of character in another setting or another fictional work who, thanks to interactions with friends or people who help him out, could slowly be redeemed to the point of becoming a genuinely good person, an actual hero. But this is Borderlands, where everyone's kind of crazy or insane, or both, and death is cheap and no one really cares about anything. I mean, even frickin' uh, Janie... Even she, when she first meets you, is like, hey, I thought you were salvaged at first. Oh, what's going on? Uh, so don't think about the eye-popping thing. You know, she, she's so casual about death, just like everyone is so casual about death. And she's a genuinely nice person, for God's sakes. And she does end up having her happily ever after. She and uh, Athena get married in the end, so that's nice. But, I mean, <laughs> for God's sakes... Even someone who is a relatively decent person still treats death and violence and horribleness as if it's every day. Because it is every day. So there was never any hope for Jack, is what I'm trying to say. But they also kind of made things much worse. So after Marif, and it's also worth noting, killing Marif was an easy thing to do from a moralistic perspective, from a making the action perspective. Because Marif literally just shot him in the back and betrayed him twice, by the way. First he betrayed Hyperion, then he betrayed Jack personally. And did so after you spared him. <laughs> so that's, I mean, most people would argue, yeah, Merif needs to die. I, I mean, even more decent people would be like, yep, okay, yeah, that's your second, that's your strike two. Right? The next is Felicity. Now, Felicity is an interesting one to me. Uh, Felicity, of course, I'm referring to the Skipper AI that I was talking about earlier. So, Felicity, obviously they need this AI in this constructor bot to get these bots in order to go retake the station, in order to save the moon, blah, 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 blah. Thing is, the station has been actively shooting the destroyer eye weapon at the moon for some time, so they're kind of on a time crunch. And when she asks, please don't put me in this, he says, uh, and he, he thinks about it. He thinks about it. And then she says, why don't you make a copy of me? And he's like, okay. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm okay with that idea. Two things. First, the copy idea is a terrible idea. I talked about this on stream, and it seems like such an obvious thing, so forgive me for talking about something that's super obvious. But if you really don't want X to happen to you, and your, your solution to this dilemma is, why don't you make an exact duplicate of me and then put them through it? What do you think the exact duplicate's going to say? No, no, please, don't put me through X. Why don't you make an exact duplicate of me? <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> that doesn't really solve anything from a moralistic perspective. Not really. But then there's the fact, and this is interesting, because this you could tell Jack has already started down the path, because at no point does he say, we'll get you out of this when we're done. You know, I know it's going to be unpleasant doing this, but we'll, you know, we, we'll stop. 
we'll, we'll bring you back out and put you into something else once we've retaken the station, would be the kind of offer I could see the initial Jack making, the Jack who stayed behind on the station to, to save your life, the Jack who was, was willing to let Marif live, right? But this is one step forward, so he doesn't make that offer, and then he forces her into the thing, and he still regrets it, it's worth noting. It's not like he's like, oh, I hate to have to do this, but he, he sits he's like, I'm sorry, I don't have time. I don't have time. The moon is going to be destroyed. We got to go. One more step. Then, then we get up to the station, and we start reclaiming the station, and... There's this wonderfully humanizing moment where we go and rescue the scientists. I don't remember all their names, forgive me. There was scientist who has the, you know, the son uh, with mental disability issues. There was the scientist who always talks like this. He wants his teddy bear back. Oh, God, that hurt my throat. <laughs> ah, excuse me, I shouldn't have done that. Ahem. Um. <laughs> Hopefully that was worth it to hear me say that. Mm. So, you know, we get a little bit of humanization, not just for the scientists, but for Jack, because as we're going through, he talks about them. And I've mentioned this before, because Handsome Jack does this as well. They have a unique memory. They have, they're actually really, Jack, I shouldn't say they, Jack's actually really smart. Um, he has a little bit of a scatterbrain, especially after his descent into total insanity, but when he's reminded of something, he's like, oh, yeah, this actually was in Tales of the Borderlands as well. He has a really sharp memory, surprisingly. And the thing is, he tends to remember facts rather than individuals. Like, he's like, oh, here's this guy. He did this and this and this and this and this and this. And here's this guy, and he does this and this and this and this. He doesn't say anything about the people, just what their accomplishments were. But it's worth noting that as he's doing this, he's basically praising them and how amazing their work is and how fantastic their contribution has been and all that fun stuff. Then he finds out that one of them might still be betraying him. Now, I did a little digging into this. From what I understand, we never actually find out if any of the others were a betrayer or anything like that. And I haven't seen any interviews like that. Maybe there's something I missed. But I didn't see any interviews or anything out of character to indicate whether his, con his concern was valid or not. Instead, he suspects that one of them has betrayed him. So he puts them into an airlock, and he shunts them out into space. Now, it should be pretty obvious why this is another step forward. And even, at this point, the player characters start being like, Whoa, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? And uh, and Athena, of course, being the one who calls him out on that the worst, is like, Dude, watch. why did you let him do that? I, you know, still a job, whatever. Still got to accomplish the mission. But uh, the thing is, if you look at it from the perspective of already being two jumps into the path, well, not being, not allowing someone else to shoot him in the back. Basically, preventative. This is the idea here. He doesn't want to be shot in the back anymore, and he needs to stop this, and he needs to stop the traitor. So one of them might be the traitor, so taking the mathematically calculated risk of killing all of them in, in, because one of them is a traitor makes sense, right? From the perspective he's at. And then there's this wonderful bit where uh, Colonel, oh, what's her freaking name, Zarpadon, I had to write it down, <laughs> Tungstina Zarpadon, um, I'm probably saying her name wrong, she, uh, calls him up and says it was the right thing to do, to, to shunt them into space, and, and, you know, brave thing, blah, 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 and he says, okay, you and I are not the same, because the difference between you and me is you're crazy, lady. 
So, <clears throat> then, uh, then he gets a little bit worse. <laughs> See, what irritates me a little bit about the story of this game, the plot specifically, is the Colonel obviously was left behind when Doll Corporation abandoned the moon after the Krakening. Okay, I get that. And so the Lost Legion are a military company that was in the employ of Dahl and is no longer, and now is basically very loyal to Zarpanon and is trying to prevent some horrific catastrophe from happening if someone was to find the vault. Now, what that catastrophe is has never been stated to this day, to the, to the, to the day I record this video. Maybe it'll be answered by the time you watch this video. I don't know. But we still don't know what this disaster was. It's implied to be some vague kind of, uh, you know, Illyrian war, or excuse me, uh, Iridian war or whatever. But we don't know what it is. She just went down there, saw something, learned something. The Watcher, which is an assumed title, by the way, uh, is like, hey, you know. And then they, she decides that it's preferable to destroy the moon and Pandora in order to prevent that from happening. Now, I haven't really talked about Zarpadon yet. She's an interesting character in her own right, because she's kind of... She is a more rational, handsome Jack. Well, I should say she is a rational, handsome Jack, because he has a total lack of rationality, really. She is someone who is very charismatic and has a lot of people who effectively function, swirl around her as a cult of personality, and she is willing to do whatever is necessary in order to accomplish what she believes is right in a zealous fashion, up to and including killing many, many people. Uh, hundreds, thousands, however many people are on the planet the moon, I don't actually know. And the parallels between the two are kind of interesting because by the time we actually defeat her, he has gotten much worse. And we act, when he actually kills her, he does his reason is because he's bored. Now, that may sound relatively normal. You know, he literally says, bored now. But the thing is, look back at his reasons for killing the previous people. Look at why he killed Merith. Look at why he killed Felicity. Look at why he killed the scientists. Each one of those had a core of reasonability behind them, even if it was slanting down the slope. Killing her because bored now. Yeah, that's pretty much we, we've pretty much seen the beginnings of Handsome Jack in that very moment, and it also, of course, irritates me as a player because she was trying to exposit, and he's like, "Nope, moving on." <laughs> and then he starts talking a lot about the bad guys and the good guys, and he's been talking about this this whole time. You know, I'm the hero after all. But then we have the the betrayal. This is the big moment in the game, when Moxie and Lilith and Roland betray uh, us, the player characters, and Jack. And that is officially the moment at which Handsome Jack is born. And it's so obvious, and the dialogue change and the voice acting is phenomenal, because while Jack has certainly done and been violent up till this moment, when we finally do that, when, when he is betrayed and they nearly kill him and he survives, he almost starts gibbering. The idea of threatening to kill someone by shoving their eyeballs out with their pinkies, that's the kind of threat that someone who has lost rationality will make. That's no longer, I'm threatening you, that's just going into madness, to be blunt.
and his tone becomes far more enraged, and it actually continues descending after that as he continues talking to us as we go through the next several missions. My favorite two points of, of Jack's descent, one is as we're going through the actual vault, there's a point at which there's a force field in our way, and we have to find some way around it. It's like, okay, the Jack from the beginning of the game would have helped and been very hands-on. He, he was a very hands-on person for a lot of the early parts of the game. Very helpful, very friendly, and actively went out of his way to try and guide us and, and assist, right? This Jack says, you know what, I don't even care, just, just fix it, just fix it. I don't know why, but that one line really resonated with me more than anything else, because as, for all the crazy and for all the insane and for all the violence, that line really shows how far Jack has gone at this point in time. That was, it's worth noting, and if you read or, or listen to the, uh, the echo logs, it makes it clear, that was the exact kind of crap that Jack hated the other Hyperion executives, or I shouldn't say the other because he's the one, the Hyperion executives and managers for, for having that mentality. Whatever, just fix it. You know, that total unreasonability kind of a thing. He hated that crap. So then we fix it, and then we get in there, and then, of course, Lilith smashes the vault uh, key into his face, and then he starts talking about how everyone's going to be screaming and it's going to be glorious, and yeah, okay. And of course, Handsome Jack, New Mask, etc. You're just kind of boiling through the end there. I do find myself wondering a couple of things. First of all, I do wonder how bad Jack would have gotten if not for that final betrayal. He was obviously already descending, as I've indicated clearly. But if Moxie and, well, mostly Moxie, hadn't tried to kill him in such a brutal and horrifically betrayable fashion, I wonder how bad he would have gotten. I'm, I'm honestly curious about this, because he was already bad, but that turned him into Handsome Jack, you know, the monster, the complete monster. It is also worth noting that Moxie isn't exactly completely innocent in this one. She was willing to destroy an entire station, and God knows what other consequences, just to kill him. Oh, and of course the player characters as well. Just to kill Jack. That's... not exactly a position of good on that one. And... I really want to know what he saw in that vision. I have a feeling it's connected to the other vaults uh, throughout the galaxies, because there's six of them, and uh, whatever's coming with the upcoming war, or whatever's coming. I don't know. And I just realized I don't actually have a lot else to talk about. This is an excellent game to go through. A lot of great side quests, which I did only a few of, but nevertheless, a lot of good plot stuff. And of course, I absolutely adore the presentation of Handsome Jack. Uh, and his, excuse me, Jack, and his turn, uh, his descent into Handsome Jack. Great game. I hope you've enjoyed this, and I will talk to you guys next time.